Policy Radio. This is your host, Ilana Levin. Film history, manga influences, fashion choices, and social commentary. This is the way we talk about The Mandalorian. I swear this isn't normally a Star Wars podcast, even though you should definitely check out our Rise of Skywalker episode that we just posted the other day, and we have covered all of the recent Star Wars-y movies of recent years. Um, But yeah, there's a lot of Star Wars right now, and we have a lot to say about it, um, from the filmmaking and cultural influences behind it. So yeah, of course, we're going to cover it. I have spoken. And joining me are two awesome guests. Brandon Wilson is a filmmaker and lecturer born and raised in Los Angeles. He attended UCLA, where he took a BA in African American Studies and an MFA from the UCLA School of Theater, Film and Television. Wilson has directed two micro-budget features, 2005's The Man Who Couldn't, which is on YouTube, and Sepulveda from 2016, which is streaming for free on Vimeo. Wilson has taught film analysis for filmmakers and introduction to editing courses at UCLA. He also teaches at Columbia College Hollywood and Long Beach Community College. In 2020, he'll begin hosting a monthly cinema salon at the Metaphor Club, a Black-owned workspace and lounge for creatives in Leimert Park. He blogs and has been a guest on several film-oriented podcasts, including mine. Uh, he He tweets regularly as at Genius Bastard. Welcome back. Thank you for having me. And joining me is Veronique Emma Hubois. Uh, em- Veronique Emma Hubois is a fiercely queer critic, cartoonist, and consultant for re- most recently spotted in the Pacific Northwest, writing her Transmascara column for Comicosity and hosting Read from the Rafters on YouTube as her drag persona, Judith Slays. Named one of sci-fi's most influential women in genre 2017, her credits include Love is Love for IDW slash DC, Critical Chips Volume 2 for Shortbox, and Called into Being, 200 Years of Frankenstein. Welcome back, Emma. It's a pleasure to be back. It feels like it's been a lifetime since I've had you on the show, and I apologize for that. We should do this more. <laughs> yes, there like entire empires have risen and fallen since I was last here. Like, I think I want to start by just having a few minutes that'll be spoiler-free, uh, in case people are just deciding if this is a show they want to watch, and then we will go full spoiler shortly after. So, you know, as for me, I almost didn't see the show. I, you know, the, the, I literally knew nothing about it other than the posters. The posters looked quite compelling, but I wasn't going to go and sign up for Disney+. Plus. I was just feeling really angry at Disney in general and also didn't want any additional streaming services. And then when I was seeing the family on Thanksgiving, my brother was like, okay, guys, let's watch the Mandalorian premiere. And I was certainly not going to say no. And then I was, I was like pretty immediately hooked on it. Um, so obviously I'm enjoying the show or else I wouldn't be sticking around and covering it. Uh, unlike, for example, Batwoman, which I had intended to cover for the show and couldn't make myself keep watching, even though it wasn't like straight up bad. It just wasn't enough to keep me watching. So in case listeners, if you were wondering, are we going to get around to covering Batwoman? I guess the answer is no. Um, so I suppose that that is definitely a clear stamp of me saying that I've enjoyed this show. It's got a lot of competition right now. Um, Brandon, how did you get into the show? Um, so yeah, I mean, I, I heard about it and I had pretty much vowed I would never, uh, get Disney plus. Um, <laughs> and, um, yeah, then the, uh, the more I saw about the show, the more I began to, um, cave and also I have a, a seven year old about the eight. So, I mean, it's almost, I mean, it's I, God bless 
parents who can hold the line if for their Disney hatred in the face of it having a kid. But with my kid, yeah, I kind of <laughs> need I need all the help I can get, and he actually watches Pinocchio almost daily. But in any case, yeah, I oh. sort of decided to go ahead and watch and and get uh, the the program the service. Um, you know, and I've been watching and following and their plans and, and knowing what they were uh, up for, uh, up to with the show. And I was very, you know, I've been very pleased with it. Um, you know, I think in a lot of ways, this is sort of the future, the best future we can hope for, for, um, you know, uh, Disney stewardship of the Star Wars franchise. I think going smaller and focusing on characters and telling sort of smaller stories is really kind of the only way forward. I think we're all kind of uh, over the sort of epic uh, narrative. At least I am. Maybe I'm projecting on everyone else. No, I, I so, agree with you. I agree with what you said. Yeah. So anyway, I will talk more. But I, 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 you know, as a fan of westerns and samurai films, also they kind of, I mean, it's kind of irresistible for me uh, uh, with the, with what they're doing and what they're up to. Well, that brings me to you, Emma. I, I reached out to you because I thought there was a pretty good chance you'd read Lone Wolf and Cub, which is an epic, famous, like just groundbreaking manga series. Um, and it was clear, even though I hadn't read any Lone Wolf and Cub when I began watching the show, I was familiar enough with the archetype to say, yeah, we should definitely have someone who's familiar with Lone Wolf, Wolf and Cub in here. And I reached out to you and you said yes, and that you'd watch The Mandalorian. But I did not. But, and while I had assumed you probably knew Wolf and Cub. I was not necessarily sure that you were watching The Mandalorian. So, so what 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 is your top line review of Mandalorian? Um, well, it, it's kind of funny because I did not anticipate such a direct link to Lone Wolf and Cub until the reveal of of the baby at the end of you know the first episode. Mm-hmm. Um, and so even then, it was kind of like, well, how long is this baby going to be in the show? But then you, you also kind of know it's a super sophisticated robot. So you're thinking, well, if they're going to spend the money, this thing is probably sticking <laughs> around. So I was like, I really hope this is what they're doing. Um, but, like, I I got into the show. Um, I, I have a friend, actually, who works at ILM. And, uh, and he gave me one of the early promo posters. And I just kind of set it on a shelf. And I was like, well, who knows? Might be good. Might be bad. No idea. Um, and then the teaser dropped. And so my initial attraction to this series was very much as like a film and TV nerd who Mm -hmm. just loves to follow like character actors and these kinds of things. So as soon as Pedro Pascal was announced, I was like, okay, that's cool. But then you show me this trailer that has Gina Carano, Carl Weathers. Um, Obviously, we didn't know Nick Nolte was under there initially. Um, uh, And John Carl Esposito from uh, Game of... I'm sorry, from um, Breaking Bad and Once Upon a Time. That was, like, huge. I was like, this is such an incredible cast of people. And, and Werner Herzog. It, it's yeah. like, what, like I would have I signed up for, for, for this show j- just based on Werner Herzog's um, voiceover in the mm-hmm. teaser. But it, and also just that, that arresting shot of the... Um, of those stormtrooper helmets on pikes, I was like, okay, this is this is going to be something special that is carrying forward the spirit of what we saw in Rogue One with Forrest Whitaker's character and that kind of thing. Seeing more more of that side of the world and also the the pseudo antagonist from Solo. There's like this undercurrent of us getting to see 
the wider um, wider world of what the galaxy was like under imperial rule that we haven't seen in any of the three trilogies. So there was there was a lot going on, and then you get the reveal of the baby finally when the first episode comes out, and I was like, wow, this this could be Lone Wolf and Cub. This could be where we're going, and it is. Yeah, that that sounds totally right on. And what better collapse of the sort of gulf between auteur cinema and like Disney is there than Werner Herzog talking to a Muppet? Like <laughs> that just blew me. I of all the directors who I thought would maybe make an appearance on this, I was just simply stunned. And apparently Werner Herzog was the voice who was like, You guys have to keep this as a Muppet, like you cannot make this CGI. Yes. Werner was super right. Yeah, Werner Herzog. I, since I've just been babbling about him, does anybody want to reflect on the significance of that? I mean, I, I, it's interesting because it, for a, a world in which we have this giant Nazi metaphor running around all the time, we haven't really <laughs> had the German accent. Right. Um, we just haven't had that before. And here we have our first straight up you know, German accented actor. And he's basically playing like Nazi scientist in a way. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I mean it's it's right there. I love the bit of the costume design that he's got this imperial medallion kind of like the iron cross that you so- associate with the German uh sort of World War 2 era German uh uniform. Um yeah, ob- obviously quite deliberate and of course very resonant um with with where, <laughs> the moment we're living in the idea that the empire never really just you know yes the, we danced with the ewoks yes the empire fell but yeah there were plenty of people who still were believers um it's actually you know it's going to be interesting watching it sort of it, whether how much it, it chooses to tee up the first order and how much it tees up the fact that these elements the machinery the 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 ideology is still out there and it's never completely dormant um, even the way that, say, we it, we perceive dormancy in, in our world of, of, of similar fascist ideologies, that, you know, it'll be interesting to see how they build on that. But, yeah, obviously the, the very deliberate uh, use of, of Herzog's uh, accent, and, yeah, we never have seen a, a German-accented uh, imperial before, um, but very well handled. And, again, um, like, like Emma said, we've, we've never really... It's amazing how much we have not seen of the Star Wars universe um, when we, because we're so we we hew so close to Luke and Leia and Han and their and their story, uh, which is central. But yeah, um, even and even with a show, and I think that's why something like Clone Wars, which of course we're going to be talking a lot about, um, you know, a show like that has you know really gained a following for the way that it is able to open up the world and take the smallest characters that maybe we've seen in one film and sort of, you know, build up, build a whole episode or world off of that character. Um, so it'll be interesting to see uh, how that goes. And, and yeah, of course, we're having this whole conversation right now about auteur cinema versus um, what I call big genre, which, you know, just my sort of name for what Disney is sort of mounting, um, obviously with Scorsese and his comments about uh, Marvel. Um, and so, yeah, it was kind of an interesting counterpoint to see Herzog, who, um, you know, p- participating in, in, in this show, 
you know, and, and again, obviously, Herzog is uh, much more open to certain, you know, participating in, in culture of the day. Uh, doesn't he's not somebody that really holds and puts, sees himself as being on Mount Olympus, and you know, he, uh, you know, is, is perfectly happy to make appearances in, in TV shows and films. So yeah, it was an interesting for, on that level as well. I, you know, I think like this series is what all of my friends who are dissatisfied with, I, mean, I was dissatisfied too, with the most recent movie were asking yeah. for. Do you know what I mean? Right. This mm-hmm. is like the, yeah, what about everybody else? And like, what about the fact that we know that even when the leadership of a fascist system collapses, like the people who followed it don't go away. They still have those beliefs. Right. And they still have those systems in order. Like, I think this is, if you're, if you need, if you're like wondering what else is out there, like this sort of answers that question. Mm-hmm. Um, and I would just say to the listeners, uh, from here on, I would say there's spoilers. Um, but even to rewind again to Herzog a bit, I mean, it, there is a significance that he, he does have that German accent. But to me, there was such a shift in in the aesthetics and the presentation of, of fascism in Star Wars with him because you're, you know, we're talking about this post collapse, but. You see him there, and just the, like the energy that he brings to that character, and the setting that he's in, really evokes like a a, a Nazi war criminal hiding out in, in Buenos mm-hmm. Aires or, or somewhere mm-hmm. like Argentina mm-hmm. post war. You know, one of these guys that the that the Vatican would have helped smuggle out um, <laughs> in the real world, and and uh, that that to me was, was spectacular because. The problem with fascism and fascist um, aesthetics in Star Wars typically is that since day one, they have always been conscious of we want this to look sleek and fun and cool because we want to sell you toys. We want to sell you a Darth Vader toy. We want to sell you a Stormtrooper toy and all these things. And and like the sort of the nadir or the apotheosis, depending on how you want to look at it, this is something like Captain Phasma, right? I mean, mm. we love Gwendolyn Christie, don't get me wrong. She's a great actress and all this, but she's in this big, shiny, you know, kind of pseudo Stormtrooper armor. And it's just kind of like, yes, this is a cool design, but th- this is like a, a, a fascist, Nazi analog officer we're talking about here, right? Mm-hmm. So, and and all of these guys, like typically the moths and, and the high up Imperial guys, they all look like, you know, British World War One commanders. They look like the guys that killed Mel Gibson in Gallipoli, right? <laughs> um, and, and, and so there's this always this weird dissonance of like people want to read Star Wars textually as like anti-fascist or like a freedom fighter metaphor, but there's still so much tension in selling us this cool image of the bad guys. Whereas there's there's no investment in, in, in doing that in that same way in this series, you know, because you've mm-hmm. got these scout troopers sitting there casually punching a baby um, and, and these other guys with just their, their, their grimy stormtrooper uniforms and this kind of stuff. So it's it's really refreshing to see just how much beyond the novelty effect of, hey, it's the Grizzly Man guy in Star Wars he was able to bring to that character and what a seismic shift in this side of the franchise it kind of signals. Well, you know, mm-hmm. this is something that I was kind of struggling with in the last episode was uh, Giancarlo Esposito. I've been a fan of him since Homicide Life on the Street when he wow. was that, like, he was that rare late season new character that people actually liked. Like, that's a miracle when a show can have a, have a late season new character and have people like them. Um, I, I don't know that we'd seen 
a like somebody in the leadership of like that high up of the empire who was black before like i know mm-hmm. we have seen a few black bridge soldiers and right. other people of color on the bridge in um the last jedi if i'm not mistaken but that's not even the same as being as big as him like what about what how is that as a political decision i guess is my question yeah, I, I recall when I saw Force Awakens, I was kind of struck by the fact that for the first time we were seeing non-white people, non-white officers, imperial officers. That that was sort of a, you know, because yeah, that was something that you did not see in the original trilogy ever, um, and I'm sure quite deliberately. I mean, also humanoid, which we never really talk about, the fact that there's never a non-humanoid uh, imperial uh, officer, you know, and, and the, yeah. the, the, that also seems to be sort of an, uh, in, a baked-in sort of, uh, you know, bigotry sort of uh, in, in their in their sort of system. Um, yeah, what's funny for me is, like, I guess my first experience with Esposito, because I'm a little older than you, is school days with, uh, <laughs> you know, and so, you know, and then school days, yes, yeah, Spike Lee is trying to present both sides. For those who haven't seen it, it takes place a homecoming weekend at a black college, and it really is... Uh, Sort of dealing with the sort of the, the sort of on-campus war between the uh, the Greeks and the sort of activists, which we would people we would now refer to as being woke, but mm. this was this was over uh, thirty years ago. So um, yeah, so it, and and again, it's clear whose sympathies we're supposed to have here. Spike Lee is not making it a even, even or. So he says some really sort of contemptible things in that, but he does it with such you know force and presence. And so yeah, it's, it it reminded me almost like he he is very. He's, I've always had it in my head that you know if you want someone who's got a mouth very questionable or objectionable things and and but also be magnetic and sort of compelling uh, and charismatic, you know he's the he's your go to. And it's been great seeing his career sort of unfold. Uh, um, especially in the last 10 years. Um, so, yeah, it was an, a very interesting choice. And I think it's what's interesting is that, um, going back to what Emma's saying, in a way, Moff Gideon's arrival sort of undoes a lot of that because it is like, okay, here he is in the TIE fighter, this incredible entrance, you know, with the TIE fighter with the, with the wings that sort of fold and he steps out. And, right, it's like this is the, this is the empire back. This is not some some uh, uh you know older guy uh, hiding in the back room with a bunch of grimy stormtroopers this guy's sort of showing that no he's still holding he still carries this air uh of authority and 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 power and you know presents himself as such as if the empire is still going it's a it's a fascinating character very interesting that they waited until sort of the the last sort of uh storyline to to reveal him and of course the big reveal in the final scene uh, that he is in possession of the dark saber um, from that that we were introduced to in um, in Clone Wars. I wonder about that because I feel like they're setting it up to they're setting a lot of things up for season two, um, and I wonder how much season two is going to be able to hold on to the sort of. Um, I mean, I know some people were frustrated with the uh, some of the episodes of Mandalorian, feeling that they were just too sort of self-contained and too small stakes. I want to say I love that about the Mandalorian because I, mm-hmm. I I am this year especially when we've seen so many big things franchises come to a close and they're never completely satisfying. In my opinion, there's always something I'm kind of like, well, okay. Um, I really just have just just relished the fact that we are getting a, something that feels big, but is also 
very small stakes. And yeah. and it feels like people are kind of wrestling with that. Like, what? But but he's not trying to find out the, the identity of some crucial character who's gonna that's gonna have earth-shattering ramifications for the galaxy. And I'm like, no, that's what's great about it. It's just these mm-hmm. small little adventures that you know. The the less he says, the better, in my opinion. And yeah, I I love all that. But of course, the show. You know, we get the reveal of the name. We've got a dark saber wielding imperial officer standing on top of a erect uh tie fighter so it feels like we're going to move into maybe something that feels a little less um a, a little less minimalist in season two but we'll have to wait and see but yeah i yeah. you know i i have two thoughts on that though like i've literally heard people say that because the show is so episodic that it's like star wars for kids and i just was like episodic television doesn't mean it's for kids and in fact all the great episodic right. tv sh- all the great kids cartoons i'm addicted to now are all highly serialized and i don't really know right. of another show that i'm watching that is as episodic as this and it's such an interesting creative choice like it's it's, it's mm-hmm. definitely feels like a throwback in those ways and i'm en- i'm enjoying that but in terms right. of the small scale i do think that this show especially in the finale sort of postulates that the future of this child is as important as anything and that the future of all the individual children like it's you know it, the, the show asks you to care about children a lot like you have all of these hmm. flashbacks to mando as a kid and right. you have all the little kids and the the episode that, that that's the magnificent seven like total magnificent seven episode is the very seven grounded. samurai thank you sorry yeah. <laughs> well, it's one's a derivative of the other i'm just being right right yeah no it's yes Th- that is I-, I have seen one of those movies more than the other but yes thank you let's let's let, let, let's give the uh, original film its due um you know i think it actually is also saying that what happens to all these children is extremely important Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, Emma, do mm-hmm. you want to talk with me a little bit about Lone Wolf and Cub with this show? I, I do, but first, I need mm-hmm. Brandon to explain the dark saber to me because I was like, yes. what is this thing? Um, <laughs> because I haven't seen any of the Clone Wars cartoon. Nor have um, I. But I have, I have a sense of like how deeply enmeshed in the production it is because um, I can't remember his name, but one of the, the main producers of Clone Wars works on Mandalorian, and I believe... He was one yes. of the X-wing pilots right. in um, in that one episode. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So yeah, Dave Filoni um, directed. There's just a few directors on the show. Everyone I think did two, except for Taika Waititi, who did the last episode. So right, the Bryce Clone Dallas the, the, Howard I think only did one. Who's that? Oh yeah, it's Bryce Dallas Howard. Yeah, she did the, the Seven Samurai episode. So yeah, so. Yeah. Um, so those are the two one-offs, and then everyone else did, uh, I believe, two episodes. So Filone, Dave Filoni, uh, Rick Famuyiwa, who directed um, The Wood, if we want to go way back when, and Dope not too long ago. He was one of the other ones. And then Deborah Chow, who is, of course, uh, has been selected to sort of be the, um, the, the director for uh, the Obi-Wan Kenobi series that they're going to be doing uh, probably, I don't know if it's next year or year after next, these things take a while but um, so in any case yeah, they're, they're, that was a cool moment uh, that where they were all the X-Wing pilots in the, 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 the prisoner episode uh, well, the prison break episode um, so the Darksaber, and I want to say I only sort of watch Clone Wars like I, I probably have not even seen half of them, my 20 year old is far more versed than than myself on this and he's a clone wars fanatic and his main he maintains that one of the best sort of over our story arcs was the sort of man when when mandalore uh became a big part of it and they got into sort of mandalore's history so 
long story short, the the the, the dark saber first appears in season two. There's a the twelfth episode called the Mandalore plot, and of course, you've got Disney Plus, so you've got all of these, and there's another season of Clone Wars coming, which I didn't realize until like about a week ago. Um, so the Mandalore plot is about the fact that there is a new regime, a new regime of Mandalorians uh, that are are sort of running things, and they have abandoned the warrior ways of the, the of the, 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 the traditional ways, and they are now pacifists. And there is a the, the head of state is a woman named Duchess Satine who has I think an, is an old flame of Obi Wan's if I'm not mistaken, and it is uncovered that there is a sort of terrorist group called Death Watch that it, in, in later seasons becomes important. And in that episode, this is the Mandalore plot, we see the Darksaber. We see that uh, a Mandalorian fights Obi-Wan and he produces this Darksaber that was stolen from a Jedi temple. Um, the, what, as I understand it, the Darksaber was made by a Mandalorian Jedi some, you know, long, long, long time ago in the past. And it's a one-of-a-kind uh, lightsaber. It's single edge. The blade's a little different, so that actually you can see like one side is the blade and one side is not. I don't know how that works with a lightsaber. <laughs> so it's it's and it comes up in later seasons, and, and and it also comes up again on the the later show Star Wars Rebels, which is set in just before episode uh, before uh, A New Hope. It comes up there too with with Mandalorians. If this this weapon is hugely important to Mandalorians. It's like this, you know, because of their history with the Jedi because it's it's one of a kind. So the fact that Moff Gideon, who we have been teased as like, you know, the Henry Kissinger of Mandalore and, and, <laughs> yeah. and has, the, you know, this war criminal, this sort of reviled war criminal, the fact that he has it um, indicates that he's going to be this sort of the pr a primary antagonist in a way we haven't had in the show up to now. And I mean, I, obviously, if they were introducing it season uh, at the end of the first season, uh, my guess is it's going to be uh, Mando's mission is to sort of reclaim the dark saber because uh, for Mandalorians because it's it's theirs and it it sort of uh, belongs to them. And uh, so that's the sort of long and short of that. And it is the first time that the dark saber has ever appeared in a live action, um, in any sort of live action. Um, so that, that's pretty cool. And in a way, of course, I'm also, you know, veteran listeners of the podcast know I'm also a big Marvel nerd. So it's kind of cool that this show has been much more integrated in terms of the films, but also the uh, series and other uh, elements than I think we've seen in some in what Marvel's TV work so far has done. Of course, now we're going to get a whole new a whole new uh, type of Marvel show coming soon because of the the change with Disney Plus. But yeah, it's it's cool that, that clearly the, there's been a few gestures, a few nods to the um, to the the animated series. Uh, that Filoni's run uh, as being, you know, canon and part of the story. And it's funny, I've had people highly recommend those series to me before, and the one I began watching, I just found the animation style was not for my tastes, which had kind of been established pre-weird 3D animation-iness, but, um, you know, it makes mm -hmm. me curious enough to want to consider it, consider it again. I think the aesthetics of this show are just really strong. Like they have yeah. really put a lot of thought into all the cinematography, all of the art direction as well, and the music and the sound design. Like, and I feel like it was yeah. more careful and thoughtful about those things than the most recent movie even was. Um, and it, it knows that it what's what it's drawing from. Um, 
but yeah, like I, you know, I, the, the, the whole framing of this as being a lone wolf and cub story was definitely a thing that was a reveal from the first episode because you don't see an adorable baby in like the trailers and they were able to keep that from the public eye for some time. Um, and, you know, I've like literally seen people debating, like, is this drawing from samurai movies? Is this drawing from Westerns? And it's like, for Christ's sake, it's obviously from both because those two genres are built off of each other. Right. Um, but uh, but with the, for, for, but from the comics as well, like when I think about, um, yeah, like Emma, if you can dig in for a little bit for me with Lone Wolf and Cub, that would be awesome. I think you, you kind of want to rewind back to where George Lucas started all of this from, uh, because I, I think the most powerful argument for why you know, Favreau and his team doing this is, is so important um, is because of because it, it kind of it recaptures and reconstitutes um, the influence of, of Japanese film and culture on George Lucas and his decisions to do everything that he did in Star Wars. Because, um, I mean, and you can, you know, a lot of people know this, you can find on Wikipedia, but even the word Jedi comes from <laughs> the Japanese term for the type of like samurai period films that Akira Kurosawa started with, with Rashomon and the Seven Samurai and all of this. Um, and it's my, one of my favorite little bits of Star Wars trivia is that George Lucas had pursued uh, Toshiro Mifune, uh, who was, you know, um, uh, Akira Kurosawa's like main leading man for most of his films. That's who he wanted for Obi-Wan Kenobi. Um, that would have been amazing. So y- you can see how the, the trajectory of the franchise would have changed if Mifuni had said yes. I mean, I like to think that, I mean, God bless Ewan McGregor, but we could have had Tadanobu Asano as um, <laughs> as Obi-Wan in the prequels, and that would have just been, been mind-blowing, unprecedented. But, I mean, we live in the world we live in. But um, So I, I love the fact that that Favreau and uh, and and the rest of the creators that they went back to these these original texts to adapt them in honestly the same ways that that Marvel does its own comics right so they take a look at this and and I mean Lone Wolf and Cub is like a, the, the the degree to which it's it's um, infiltrated and and informed our culture um, of, of of just pop culture since the 1970s is you know, you you can't overblow it. You can't exaggerate it. Um, and I wrote a piece recently when um, when the writer of a Kazuo Koike uh, recently died, um, just kind of tracing all of the steps of the different ways that that that's, that individual manga series has been um, so influential. Um, because I mean, I, I think a lot like most people's direct, you know. Um, I guess contact with it comes from from a Wu Tang Clan song from Fourth Chamber, right? Mm-hmm. Um, because you get the the English dub of um, of the intro that's supposed to be spoken in in the in the child's voice describing his father and all of this, and then the beat kicks in and it's a classic Wu Tang joint. Um, but the or you know you see the clips of it that get played in um, Kill Bill Volume Volume Two when Beatrix's daughter is watching it, but. The basic idea of it is that um, Ogami Ito is the executioner for the Shogun, right? Like, he's the guy who, you know, um, executes the death sentences for anybody the Shogun decides um, has to die. And there's kind of a, a vast conspiracy from another clan 
that basically just they want this prestigious role for their family and to consolidate power within the shogunate. So um, they set him up as looking disloyal and they try to have him killed. His wife and son are killed. He survives. Or sorry, no, sorry, his wife dies. Him and his infant son survive. And um, he comes back to his son, uh, who's just a, a little infant, the same size as, as Baby Yoda is in um, The Mandalorian. Um, and, he, and he says to the kid, he says, you, you've got two choices. And he puts a ball down, and he, and he puts, a, puts a knife on the floor, and he says, uh, choose the ball, and you'll go with your mother. So he'll kill the son, and, and he'll, he'll be reunited with his mother. And having his or if you take the knife, you come with me and we're going to go on this journey together. And so the kid crawls over to the knife and they go on the run together and he decides to, um, the father decides to become a mercenary for hire, um, you know, in, in more of like the, the rural areas outside the capital um, to anybody who will hire him. And so along the way, he's got to figure out impromptu child care or how he's going to deal with his kid while he's, you know, bounty hunting or assassinating someone or doing all of these various jobs. And there's a big overarching plot, but it, he's kind of, you know, he's a wandering sword for hire is the whole thing. Um, and so when this started getting picked up and translated um, into English, you know, you got a whole series of covers that were um, drawn by Bill Sinkovich. Uh, Matt Wagner did a couple. Uh, Frank Miller did a whole bunch. And so those artists, they were they were blown away by this. And they were translating them into, translating to their own work. Because like uh, the famous um, Claremont Miller uh, Wolverine miniseries. Like it's, that's where all of the, the ninja and samurai imagery that Frank Miller was obsessed with came from came directly um, from what uh, what Koike and, and Goseki Kojima the artist um, had done on it uh, and and that just kind of and that just filtered out into our culture because you know you've got you know Miller applied that same stuff to Daredevil with the hand and all of this mm -hmm. and you know Eastman and Laird come along and, and they snatch everything that Miller did on Daredevil and they turn it into the Ninja Turtles you know <laughs> the hand becomes the Foot Clan and yeah. all this kind of stuff and so it just it just disseminates in all of these different directions um, and so it's so fascinating to see it come home in Star Wars in such a direct way um, that that's really about looking back at what was George Lucas thinking about when he made Star Wars? And this was a big major component of it. One of the things that was really built in here also was sort of this, uh, you know, him being like this wandering hero going from town to town and like the ways in which having the child with him uh, shapes his experiences. And I mean, obviously from a dr dramatic aspect, it, it hangs the stakes about everything. Like as if you don't already care about Pedro Pascal and his helmet with the high cheekbones, like you definitely <laughs> care about the baby. Um, and like you have this, you have this confusing sort of like, is this like, you, uh, 
you want them to stay together, but you also know this is a really dangerous place for the baby to be. Mm-hmm. And sort of that tension about what you want to have happen there is like part of the part of the drama as well, at least for me. And the other thing is like, I just really wasn't familiar with Mandalorians and Star Wars lore. And this was such a built out and developed culture in this show. And my understanding is there's some differences um, between Mandalorian culture as depicted in the show versus some of the other kinds of Star Wars medium. But the idea of it being this really like, this culture that seems very much grounded in like Bushido, like, you know, mm-hmm. samurai culture and like, you know, losing face versus like keeping your mask on. It's like, it's like pretty wild. And at the end, when you have the armorer who I freaking love her, she's amazing telling mm-hmm. him like, no, the way is you take care of the kid is like very much answering this un this answering a question that's sort of been left open by him in terms of his relationship to the culture. And for us as viewers in terms of like, what is it that we want to have happen in the story? Yeah, I mean, it reminds me somewhat of what happened with the Klingons in Star Trek, you know, that (laughs) at first they're this perfect bad guys, just, you know, and then when that gets kind of boring and and a new generation comes along, they start to say, well, what if they are also, you know, have this honor code and we can sort of see that there's a, see it from their perspective. I mean, it's almost like us unlearning the sort of, you know, racism against the uh, Japanese and Imperial Japan after the wake of Pearl Harbor, World War II, and then kind of slowly in the post-war period sort of realizing that this is a much more complex culture and that we can sort of let go of some of our initial, um, you know, uh, resentments and angers and feelings about, oh, well, they attacked us and so forth and start to see them in a more full way. So, yeah, it's it's a lot. It is interesting that even, and even within the show, as, as I said, with, with Clone Wars, there's a literal war within the Mandalorian's uh, ranks about what it is to be a Mandalorian. Um, what's new, I think, is that this idea, and this could be something that uh, has been talked about in other media. It's Again, I'm not like the, uh, I wouldn't call myself an expert on, on Star Wars uh, extended, expanded universe, and of course some of that stuff has been sort of reduced now to uh, basically uh, has been decanonized essentially, yeah. but um, you know, I think it's interesting too that um, that dialogue is going on within the culture about, you know, what are we, what uh, what do we stand for, um, you know, and, and that, that they're sort of working it through, and this idea, of course, the big reveal that, you know, a Mandalorian at this point is a creed, uh, really, more than it mm-hmm. is a race, you know, that this is something that you... Um, that you adopt and then you're a Mandalorian, which has a lot of resonances on lots of levels. You know, it's almost like being an American or, you know, the way that... And, and I'm fascinated by how Mandalorians... Oh, I'm sorry, I, I knew what I was getting at and I sort of got away from was this idea that the Empire purged Mandalore, which I don't think was really... I think that's a new con- new thing that we're learning, that mm-hmm. at some point the Empire came in uh, between episodes three and four and did this sort of destruct decimation of Mandalore, because, you know, which makes perfect sense. I mean, they're a warrior race, and they're, they're going to be... Uh, once they got rid of the Jedi, it, it makes sense they would turn their attention there. So it's, it's, uh, that's t- just so fascinating that they are, on the one hand, this sort of 
you know, they are a people that have a lot of blood on their hands, and yet they are also now the sort of oppressed minority that's sort of been forced into the into the shadows and are, are very much hunted at the same time. And yet their ranks are open to anybody who's willing to sort of embrace their teachings. I mean, that's, that's all just so interesting. And one last thing, I'm just, the whole thing about this being for kids, I mean, First of all, all Star Wars is for kids, for Christ's sake. I mean, this is what Star Wars... I saw Star Wars when I was six years old, when it was opening, you know, in its first run. And I loved it. And that's kind of how it should be. You know, I, I, I hate, in general this sort of the edgelord instinct of like, well, now that, now that I'm, in, I'm 40, I think it's time for the things that I loved as a child to reflect that I'm 40. It's like, no, it's time for you to understand that this was something you loved as a kid. And it's okay to, to add some colors to it and add some dimension to it. But at the end of the day, this ha yeah, of course the Mandalorian should be something that I can watch with my uh, seven-year-old if he will sit still for long enough, for a moment. And we, can, and we should be able to enjoy the Mandalorian. I don't, I mean, and I appreciate that it's reaching for these sort of, you know, um, as, as towards certain influences, Peck and Paw and, and Lone Wolf and Cub that, of course, I can't watch with my kid. But I appreciate that there's, <laughs> it's obviously working with those influences. But, yeah, it's Star Wars. It shouldn't be something that I can't. You know, so I just, that whole argument is just like, it's, it's just is so, to me, absurd and on the face of it. And just to me, it's, it just says people don't really understand what makes this thing endure, which is that it, it really can speak to everyone everybody so uh and i'm glad that i feel like they did a great job striking just the right tone now of course there are, are moments where you're like okay it's disney like the prisoner the prison break episode where they have to go back and show you that the mandalorian didn't actually kill even <laughs> even though he right. would have yeah even though that he would have to me. <laughs> yeah. so they have to go back and Although show you that he, yeah. he, he he jailed them and didn't kill them but uh, you know hey I, I it's disney i i get i get what they have to do i mean i, I don't have a problem with that you know, the other the thing that I also felt like the show must have been showing for kids was in the finale when you see uh, the full, full Mando origin story. It was all stuff we already knew. Mm -hmm. um, and it's not like I was like, oh, God, this is so boring or whatever. But I did kind of feel a little bit condescended. And then I said, oh, right. No, maybe. Right. Kids, kids. They might. Kids might need this like explicitly spelled out for them. Um you know, I but I, I think yeah, I do think in general, like it, 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 you know, it's also a show that did a good job of combining humor, yeah. um, in in its moments, uh, like Amy Sedaris just blew my mind. <laughs> I, but I I've, I've never seen an actress more dedicated to trying to look ugly than she is, and I know that people are sort of like, well, that's sort of a tribute to Ripley, but like, no, Ripley is beautiful and hot, right, and right, like, just right. had hair that was very much of her time period, mm, right? Like, I'm sorry that you find that hair to be disqualifying for a person's attractiveness, but like, you know, and Amy Sedaris is a very attractive person, and she just likes to put on make herself look ugly. I don't quite understand why it's kind of fascinating, mm -hmm. um, but that whole design bit was is wild to me. Um, mm -hmm, mm -hmm, I, I don't know. Mm -hmm. any, any, no, it's, any it's, it's a great... Costuming? <laughs> like, at the wig and prosthetic stuff. I don't know if you have any insight <laughs> into this from your drag work, Emma. Oh, God. God, no. I, I, I don't. I mean, it's definitely less than Charlize Theron were to uh, Megyn Kelly and Bombshell. Um, mm. but, but the whole Mandalorian helmet thing... Um, I, I mean, there, there, there are so many different kind of metaphors and illusions you can draw out of it. And I mean, one of the obvious ones is, of course, like that, that that's how in Lucha, Lucha Libre and 
you know, an, an, an masquerada uh, wrestler, like a, a mass Mexican wrestler, that that's how they treat that, right? Like you, oh. you don't take that mask off, and it, it's a big dramatic moment um, because, like, when a, a wrestler who does that, like when they're ready to transition into a new part of their career, they'll do a match where it's like mask versus mask or mask versus career, mask versus hair, where like if one person loses, they have to shave their head. If the other person loses, they lose their mask. And it's it's a big heel move to try to take off, you know, a, uh, a masked wrestler's mask in that context, the same way that you saw, um, I think it was Clancy Brown's character in The Prisoner tried to do that. And I think it happened mm-hmm. a couple of times. Um, but... The whole yeah. and, and, and the whole idea of um, them saying uh, that that being a Mandalorian is, is a creed, not a race. I mean, number one, I love the fact that Carl fucking Weathers was standing <laughs> right there when she said that line, and I just yeah, I just heard the Rocky theme. You know, I just I couldn't help it. But he's but, so good. But when yeah. um, but but when when they say that. And, the, and that this is a choice and this is something you undergo, there isn't, like, there's an opening there is it, to read that as an analog for Islam in certain ways, right? But, I mean, we typically think of that for, for, for women, right? Um, mm-hmm. and, and the choice of, uh, you know, a more modest dress and these kinds of things. So it, it, it's kind of interesting that, that you could get a, a vague reading of, you know, coming to accept the Mandalorians and, and Mando, as being about the you know broader Islamophobia in the culture, and uh, you know to the point about the flashback of him as a kid, I think it is kind of politically important to reinforce, you know that 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 he's a, a refugee and a victim mm-hmm. of genocide. And I mean, right. Cara Dune. This is like a blink and you miss moment. But Gina yeah. Carano's character is from Alderaan, and you just yeah. get it in yeah. this throw in this kind of throwaway line. That's right. You know, Mm-hmm. But then you're like, whoa, wait, hold on. And then you realize, you think back of how well these characters mesh and how how much they understand each other and why she was the one to deliver that line. And you're like, yeah, they both suffered um, basically gen- you know, genocide, right? Like Alderaan was ob- obliterated in one go by the Death Star. Mm-hmm. And so you, you, you kind of see this... Um, you know, kind of knit together in that sequence. And I was happy to see her fleshed out some more in that way. I mean, her character yeah. was amazing. I yeah. love her. I love having a woman actress who looks like she could actually beat you up as opposed yes. to one who's like smaller than me and I'm supposed to believe she can beat me up. Um, <laughs> Please watch like, Haywire. If you have not seen Haywire. Oh, Haywire is good. She's so yeah. good in that. Cause, and cause she was so underused in, De- in Deadpool. It's like embarrassing how underused Yeah, yeah, yeah. But like, yeah, no, her um, fight. I mean, just watching her throw punches. Yeah, it's kind of amazing like you just don't see that i mean you don't see that even with male i mean just someone who clearly has thrown a lot of punches and it just has a it just reads very real now her first her introductory fight scene with the mandalorian is really one of, for me a, a highlight of the show uh and yeah I, i'm so i'm glad to i mean i, I knew they were going to kill her off because she's just too good a character <laughs> uh too good a backup character to have and yeah i hadn't really thought about the, the 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 hatred she has and i love that where she says it's imperials and it's like okay i'm in like if it's killing imperials i will always show up because that's what <laughs> that's 
by saying that is what I do, right? Because it's yeah. they, we saw her world get blown up on a whim, basically. I mean, just just you know, as a casual thing, that wasn't even the the big action in the uh, in that particular film. Um, but yeah, just 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 really. Uh, I mean, the casting in general. I mean, and having Carl Weathers, just knowing mm-hmm. that, like, right, someone like him who's been around, and and I mean, it does remind you of like B a great B Western sort of in, in the best possible way, just the way casting people that we have already sort of a certain affinity to who are not mega stars necessarily, but just can just bring it because, and we know, and we have a history with them and we know what they're capable of. So yeah, I, I just was really impressed all the way around and seeing yeah. Clancy Brown, you know, yeah. I mean, in that episode, it just, yeah, just very, very, very shrewd, um, uh, casting. Uh, and I, I, I identified, even though I'm like not a Harry Potter person at all, so I only know her from Game yes. of Thrones, but I, I, right. I identified the actress from Game of Thrones who played Osha like immediately yeah. despite her very, very heavy makeup and mm-hmm. acting like super extra. It's like, uh-huh. is there an entire race of aliens whose entire personality is being extra? That, <laughs> that seems like that's their thing. That is their um, thing, yeah. <laughs> the the Twi'lek are are wild, and I was I was so excited because I I know her from from Harry Potter. I guess I I mean I'm sure I saw her in Game of Thrones and didn't realize at the time. But the the Twi'lek are like one of the strangest artifacts of Star Wars because like the the sexual dimorphism in that species is nuts because like all of the 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 females of the species are just total babes and like most of them that show up in the films and even the extended universe are like strippers or sex workers or yeah. trafficked or or, or or just in that vein and 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 like just super hypersexualized and then all of the males of the species just look like complete dirt bags so <laughs> there's probably some like weird latent orientalism going on there or something but like yeah it's it's hilarious because when uh when when Bioware came around to make Mass Effect and they're like, we're going to make our dark, serious, adult Star Wars, they just completely removed the male of the species and they created a whole species of, like, these sexy blue chicks that's basically just Twi'leks if they were all women somehow. It's, right. it's wild. I just mm-hmm. hate how so much fantasy just has like sexual dimorphism i.e whether like people's bodies looking strikingly different based on like what they're assumed you know like like gender would be is so extreme like much more so than it would be in any human and it's all because they don't want to have there be any women who they don't want to fuck right like that's it (laughs) and it's just like no no don't it it, it, like it offends me on so many levels it offends me how how limited their palette is of what's Mm -hmm. attractive and it offends me that the female characters must all be sexually desirable to heterosexual men and like and and god forbid that the men be sexy although i'm seriously give this one props for like this has been a topic of conversation mando is hot despite functionally mm-hmm. not having a face and there was i think the conclusion we drew i was just sort of like well it's because his his, his mask his cheekbones uh-huh he's, he's got a good voice and we do know ultimately that pedro pascal is underneath yeah. that yeah, I was gonna right. say, we mask, do know <laughs> but like the mask's cheekbones are a lot more pronounced than they are on some of the other bounty um than like boba fett and stuff like that and he's just so very mm-hmm. shiny it's good design. Yeah. It really is. It is. Uh, it is. I mean, that was a great moment when he comes out in the full Beskar armor, um, and it almost feels like if, if 
begins to almost feel like this is a long origin story, you know, of him, mm-hmm. even though he's not new, you know, he's got a long, long history of, of, of this kind of work, but somehow it's like, this is where he's really kind of becoming and transforming into something, into something new. One of the big transformations, obviously, through the story, and it's it's one, you know, you could see a mile away, was Mando starting by hating droids to Mando realizing that, right. you know, a droid a, sort of, it's sort of like the Mandalorian is a, being Mandalorian and their culture is sort of being, uh, sort of adopting, choosing a certain kind of programming for how you want to act. And that the droids, they have, you know, it, they don't, they can't choose their own programming, but we can choose the programming that we give them mm-hmm. and the end result of that. And I definitely feel like, you know, from the second he's like, it's better not be a droid. At the beginning of the series, you're like, ah, right. yes, droid, he's going to come around on this. Right. Um, and uh, I don't know. I thought, what, what, what were thoughts about that, 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 that particular storyline? Yeah, it's interesting because, you know, anti-droid, uh, anti-droidism, I guess we can call it, has been a, a sort of a theme throughout the, uh, from the going back to the first film. And, uh, you know, of course, the great little little uh, thing where when he returns to the uh, the cantina from, the Mos Eisley cantina from uh, episode four, the, where once droids were sort of forbidden, now the entire staff is are droids, and the, there's a droid inside. So that's definitely there. Um, I do think that the flashback in the finale in episode eight did sort of sort of drive home that you know it was a droid that almost killed him. And I guess that's the Clone Wars, which I, I sort of did the math. So yeah, mm-hmm. I guess that would have been the Clone Wars when his when his planet was um, was being uh, decimated. Um, that genocide was happening. Um, and then there was a Mandalorian who saves him and extends the hand. And so, of course, now you understand why what happened in the first episode happened because it was you know literally the same thing with him reaching out to the to to uh, the baby. So um, yeah, I, I appreciate how they kind of parsed that out and unfold and slowly revealed uh, what we needed to know about him. And yeah, and it even worked that the droid comes back in the in the last episode. And of course, right, you know that this is this is going to be his arc that him him learning to sort of let go of his hatred, um, you know, and and actually care about a, a droid sort of sacrificing himself for the greater good. Um, but you know, hey, it works. I mean, that's, that's, mm-hmm. it, it works well. And it's, uh, and, and I applaud them for, 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 you know, thinking about that and giving a successful arcs. I mean, this is, it is very striking to me how much more satisfying this, this eight, eight episodes are, have been than the, than the trilogy that is also wrapping up at exactly the same time, um, which, you know, doesn't, which botched, so many things in my opinion uh mm-hmm. especially in terms of world building and like understanding like this is what's going on here and this is what has happened and this is why these people feel this way because of you know it's just amazing how poorly that's been handled in the in the recent trilogy and um how well it was done here so i mean i i it's, i'm not trying to trying to i don't think it's a, a bold prognostication to say this feels like this is where this is where Star Wars needs to be and less Episode Nine and Solo, you know, less trying to do these big stories on the big screen and more just kind of focusing in on characters. Um, it almost reminds me of what happens with Westerns in the 50s, you know, and I, and I think this is interesting, relevant also, because 
Westerns, somewhat like musicals, people have these sort of ideas, very fixed ideas about them, and they think they don't like them, and they think they are just one thing, when in fact, I think in both Westerns and musicals, regardless of your disposition or taste, you can probably find one that fits you if you really spend mm -hmm. the time to look for it. It's not a you know, monolithic thing. So with Star Wars, I think the, the films are, are not so much like 50s Westerns. And by that, I mean, in the, uh, in the sort of 30s and 40s, you have Westerns where, yeah, this is the sort of cliche of the Western, that there's white hats and black hats, that there's a certain, ten there's a tending towards myth, you know, or, or real life figures like uh, Wyatt Earp and Doc Holliday. But in the 50s, um, and again, maybe I have this wrong, maybe this is just my personal take on it, but in the 50s, you have a, a new psych, uh, psychology sort of entering the Western. You have sort of the, 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 the war and the, the, what, what happened in the war sort of entering the Western. And you also start to get sort of shadings of characters, shades of gray. And so you start to have, you know, and, I, and specifically I'm thinking of two cycles, the Anthony Mann cycle of Westerns with uh, Jimmy Stewart and, that he did, about uh, six of them. And then also the uh, cycle, similar cycle that Bud Bedecker does with Randolph Scott. Um, and in those Westerns, you really start to change, you start to move into something that's, they move away from sort of what already was a cliche even in the 50s for Westerns. You start to have heroes that are, have, that have their own, that have stuff that they're trying to work through and work out, and sometimes they succeed and sometimes they don't. You have characters that are basically decent but also have done terrible things. Uh, and so, yeah, I, I, to me... The, and, and also, especially yeah, Bedeckers are so minimalist, sometimes there's stretches where no one's talking. Um, and yeah, this, this show kind of definitely reminds me of that kind of Western. And it's interesting that, that, to think that Star Wars is going through a certain, 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 uh, um, sort of cycle and arc the way the Western did. And then, of course, that leads to Peckinpah in the mm -hmm. 60s, which is where, which they also just a little bit hint at mm -hmm. a few times. I think every time Mando grabs a big gun a and big shoot, gun, fires yeah. it, mm -hmm. I'm thinking of Pike, you know, at the end of the Wild Bunch. And even the, the, the two-part mm -hmm. finale, you know, felt very much had yep. that sort of, slightly apocalyptic like okay oh, this yeah. is it and i'm gonna if we're gonna go out let's go out this way well, it's um like you have till sundown like right i'm like it, yeah you're never gonna have, <laughs> no one will ever say you'll have you have till sundown in any right. other kind of star wars property right you know people fret a lot and understandably lord knows about the dominance of superhero media but people forget that cowboy movies right were everything and cowboy tv shows were everything for decades right. in america right. mm -hmm. and these were the, this was like the hugest genre for for such a long time um so we've been through cycles like that you know in the past so it's interesting to see that kind of getting brought back through mm -hmm. the same engine that's providing us with like our endless supply of superheroes basically correct correct yeah, I mean, you know, apologies for bringing him up, but that Tarantino really kind of broke that open for me because I was, mm. I was a Western skeptic. I mean, I, I love the remake of True Grit um, with the Coen Brothers one, and there was a couple explicit westerns along the way that was like, okay, sure, but you know, after Django and and just kind of how much Tarantino was talking about what went into it, then you, you look up films like The Great Silence that so you get into Peck and Paw. And these kind of things, and, and you, you sort of see that open up, and kind of like, and Tarantino railing against John Ford, you know, <laughs> and, and making fun of him with the with the Ku Klux Klan guys in, in Django Unchained. 
Um, but you do see that pervasiveness of the Western in uh, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, right? Yes. Where it just, mm-hmm. you know, but then there's, there's other directors like, um, like James Mangold, right? Who, the reason why Logan is called Logan is because it's referencing Shane, yeah. right? And that, mm-hmm. that he wanted to kind of do a similar thing. And it's, it's so funny because the, the, um, the Prisoner episode is, I believe it's credited to Christopher Yost, mm-hmm. who is the co-creator of X-23, who was... Oh, shit. Right? Because um, he, yes. he co-created her on X-Men Evolution back in the day, right? Um, and so he comes back to do a Space Western episode, and that really kind of... There's so many, like, loops of the animation and, and comics and genre world that just keep circling back on each other, right? Mm-hmm. Um, Mm-hmm. that you, you see this name and you're like oh I know who that is you know one character type that was in this that I hadn't seen in other Star Wars was the like bounty hunter Trustafarian kid who hires <laughs> him to help and like we all know that guy is going down right um, right right that right. was definitely a new character type for the series yes but it's also that kind of kid is like such a western trope you know the kid he's bought he's got the, the he's got all the gear he's heard the stories he's gonna force his way into sort of the mythology uh and he has no clue and he usually yeah, ends up getting himself killed um and that he's got a real ruthless streak um and again that was in, in a case anyone missed it that was jake Cannavale, who's got an amazing um family tree he is sydney lumet's grandson he is lena horn's great grandson and and uh bobby cannavale and jenny lumet's son so wow yes yes, wow wow so that's uh that's him and uh he yeah he did a great job i think portraying this kind of you know kid that yeah the second you see him sitting in Han Solo's seat, no less, you know, which is a great touch, <laughs> uh, where he, where he shot Greedo, um, mm-hmm. you know, you, you get it. And again, I mean, that's, there's a certain play. That's the whole pleasure of the Western though, is seeing these things play out in new ways and seeing the tropes brought up and you kind of know where it's going, but you want to see how it plays out this time around. And, and so, yeah. um, Oh, we got to also mention the, the, the end of the gunslinger, um, there's a very good chance that that was Boba Fett at the end of the Gunslinger, uh, going to the body of um, uh, Ming Na Wen's character. Um, so yes. that's a yeah. So, oh. and I, so because there's a, a you know you, there, there's been videos done already where there's a spur sound with the steps, and if you go back in Empire Strikes Back, when Boba Fett steps out in Cloud City, you hear those sort of spurs. Um, and it's because at first it was a little confusing when I watched the episode. I thought it was Mando. We were going back yeah. to see that Mando had sort of taken something off her body or buried her or something. But no, and then it cuts. So I was thinking that this is where we were going for the finale. But this, that means that they may be saving it for season two, that Boba Fett actually is alive and that this is going to be either an ally or an antagonist to the to the Mandalorian. So I, I think that's definitely on its way. I mean, fans are going to just demand that to happen, and it's easy enough to do a Boba Fett with, with a costume and all that. Yes, you, yes, your, yes. Your, your point about um, the Trustafarian bounty hunter as a type, I, it made me think about, you know, specifically like Ricky Nelson and Mario right. Bravo, for example. And the thing is, he never played a pop song 
for us. Um, so he's just, he's like actually worse than Colorado. Um, but what we did get a lot of was just stunning composed music throughout. Yeah. Um, often with Western echoes and lots of Star Wars-y themes to it. And I wish I had more to say about it other than it was magnificent. That's uh, Academy Award winner Ludwig Göransson, who did the music for Black Panther. So, oh, he's, yeah, he's the composer for Mandalorian. And, yeah, I think they wanted something that had, since he did such an amazing job with the Black Panther score, finding African instruments and using them uh, and sort of giving it this sort of feeling like this was sort of old music. And with the Mandalorian, you know, the sense of this being an old culture and having feeling somewhat alien while also feeling like, um, you know, the sort of fitting in the Star Wars, yeah, it's, uh, the Star Wars sort of sound. They did a really terrific job, yeah. Or he did a really terrific job. Baby Yoda, obviously, is the breakout star from the series. And <laughs> it would have been so easy for that to go wrong. I have to just honor the fact that it went right. I mean, obviously, one of the big problems with the, you know, the, the worst, uh, n very much non-humanoid character from Star Wars, which was Jar Jar Binks, was that that character was a racist <laughs> stereotype. And like, you do that, you're hampering your ability to have anything good happen. But, um, you know, well, they, I, I think... In in The mm -hmm. Prisoner, there's that, they, they kind of recognize that, right? Yeah, there's that, yeah. what, what are you, a Gungan under there? Gungan, right, I mean, right. That was, that was amazing. Um, <laughs> yeah, so, you know, like having it, letting, letting, the, letting Baby Yoda, you know, like be animatronic and a, and a, and a puppet rather than being animation, I mm -hmm. think was really wise. Um, I loved looking at all of his little baby teeth. Like whenever right. he opens his mouth and you see he's got these little tiny teeth, I was like, that's just for some reason that that is part of the cuteness, I think. Because obviously, you know, you have the giant eyes and the giant eyes is what mm -hmm. makes anything cute. Um, but but there was like these subtle notes like that, you know, the little fingers that look like a toddler's fingers, yes. mm -hmm. um, his little noises, the head tilting just amazing puppet design um and i just don't know i don't think you need to have, compare babu frick with baby yoda we can love them both oh what sorry babu frick from the movie from babu episode frick? nine uh, the I, mechanic i i have i am blessed enough to not have seen it okay uh, okay all I know is that Taika Waititi's IG droid got a more respectful like send off than C three PO apparently, so that's that's something. <laughs> it's complicated. It is complicated. But, um, but the, uh, yeah, they have a really they have a really excellent uh, Muppet in Rise of Skywalker also, and I just think people have been making a fake competition that isn't necessary between my two adorable puppets who I love. I agree, um, and I, I just want to say I I find it incredibly gratifying that um baby yoda what they were, were either they were just so trying to honor the, the sort of surprise at the end of the first episode or they just kind of were caught caught flat-footed the fact that we didn't have a you know wall, walls of baby yoda's for sale this month is amazing to me that that something that took off so quick and it, it's like the toys aren't there yet so people have literally started making their own sort of baby yoda uh, uh swag 
it's kind of a you really don't see that too much in 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 this culture where it seems like everything is sort of tested. I mean, even the Mandalorian. I mean, I, I have mm-hmm. a, again, I got a kid, so I I know what's on the shelves. And the fact right. that he's not on the shelf everywhere that the Christmas season came and this 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 thing that took off wasn't already just there is kind of a that's kind of remarkable. It just kind of makes you realize, okay, humans are doing this after all. And yeah, they someone just didn't think that um, you know to to have have these uh, a billion uh, baby Yoda toys ready to, for for stocking stuffers, but uh, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, somebody also finally put out there like, yes, yeah, stormtroopers are really bad shots, and we're going to do a bit about it. <laughs> oh yes, <laughs> right. That that was it, it. Was so funny and excruciating at the same time because like every time he punched the bag, I was like, "Are you oh. kidding me? I'm going to kill you!" But you know he's going to get killed messily at some right, point, and then right. they're. They're sitting there just taking the shots, and neither one of them is saying a word. Oh God! But yeah. I think that yeah. yeah, I think they punched the baby too much, and that that was unnecessary. Um, but I think the bad shots was very necessary. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. That was pretty pretty hysterical. Um, and like, I they have a lot of different stormtrooper designs and styles that are used through this in different ways, and you see different sort of fighting styles. It's it's pretty it's pretty flushed out with the stormtrooper lore i think in this um there so was some nice there was some nice design echoes i just wanted to say to rogue one with the shot yep. the death troopers and black and then also you know moff gideon's um sort of look was definitely took a lot from krennic and uh and uh and of course the original trilogy but also a lot from krennic and uh yeah. rogue one Rogue One. I don't. I don't think we could have had the Mandalorian without Rogue One. I, I think that yeah. was yeah. A, a massive inflection point um, in the franchise. Yes, a hundred percent. Yeah, that movie was amazing. I have two whole podcasts dedicated about it because I had so much to say, and I feel like there could always be more. Mm-hmm. Um, the painted titles at the end of the of the H episode, I think, are one of the most beloved features of it. Yeah, and I think it speaks to how great art like painted art can be and Mm -hmm. how it would be very much worth it for marvel to like invest in letting the star wars you know comics which have had some fabulous artists on them don't get me wrong salvador la roca was great for example but like you know like like let there be like some more full-on painted art like let that art sort of be in the foreground um because I, people just responded to it. They, it just called back to classic movie posters in a really powerful way. Well, those are, I think those are actual process drawings. Um, because it, it kind of sounded like, I just saw that video of, I think it may have been like a D23 panel. I'm not sure where it was, but Pedro Pascal was talking on a panel about how when he came in for initial talks... Um, they had all of this art up on the walls that, that sounded like those end credit crawls. Um, and he was looking at the characters and he said, John Favreau, am I that one or that one? And then you know, Favreau says, no, he wants you to be the Mandalorian. And he was just stunned. So I think I think those are, uh, that is process art and like uh, mm-hmm. storyboards for the series. That's That's kind of been my assumption all along. Cool. So we're coming up, we've come up on an hour. Um, do folks have stuff that you want to hit on for sure before we go? Um, I guess one final, one, one, one little thing that jumped out at me to, to get back to Herzog's character, because I just always want to get back to his character, though, mm-hmm. is that 
you know, when we when we talk about the idea of of you know prejudices and and how we're reading the Mandalorians and their history, um, it's so fascinating. Is that one one of the most kind of authentically sort of like Nazi things about Herzog's character is how he fetishizes and seems to try to project a sense of respect for the Mandalorians um, while at the same time obviously being part of the machine that um, you know that that perpetrated you know a, a genocide against them right he says you know look how majestic the Beskar is when it's on a real Mandalorian is like oh it's too bad that the Mandalorians are dying out and all this kind of stuff and it's kind of like you know as an art history major you really see that 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 same kind of like that modernist primitivist perspective the kind of way that you know picasso approached african art the way that you know emily carr was painting totem poles in the pacific northwest and this kind of this sort of salvage and and these salvage and primitivist um paradigms that are like you know seeking to to kind of fetishize or quote-unquote honor something from the perspective of the group that was also responsible for, you know, those practices being suppressed or those peoples being displaced. And that really struck me as such a unexpectedly authentic thing to see in action in Star Wars. Wow, yeah. I mean, it actually, to call to mind today, like that really fucked up eugenics piece in the New York Times by, you know, uh, mm-hmm. Brett... Um, Stevens, Stevens, Uh, (laughs) where it's like, I'm complimenting Jews, but by leaning into racial stereotypes in ways that are actually dangerous for everybody. It has that same exact tone, I thought it like Mm -hmm. is really quite haunting. Mm -hmm. Um, Do you, uh, Brandon, do you have any final thoughts for? Um, No, I I feel like I kind of have said, said my piece. I think um, it will be interesting to see how much we retain i hope that they don't completely lose the sort of episodic nature of it um if you look at this one i mean really okay so there's eight episodes really in a way the first three are kind of very tightly knit you know this is the Mm -hmm. the the first job the decision to, to to take the child and also the um you know the fallout that comes from this absconding with the baby um climate you know culminating with that other the great moment with all the mandalorians uh, show up another again just straight out of the western and you know they, these things work that's why they survive you know seeing yeah. a bunch of mandalorians fly into action even though this is an incredibly destructive choice for them uh mm-hmm. works and then of course the last two episodes are kind of really a two-parter um, where we are uh, Gideon introduced. And really, so that means we have three in the middle that I think is where people sort of started to wonder what was this was about that are sort of self-contained. The Sanctuary, which is Seven Samurai, and then the Gunslinger, um, which is just, you know, a, 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 again, a great 50s Western, and then the Prison Break. Um, and to me, I think that was the strength of it, is, is, is giving us a character that we sort of you know, identify with and that we know, but we don't know and, uh, and letting us see the sort of darker sort of uh, aspects of the Star Wars universe that, you know, don't have to do with the Senate or rebuilding the Jedi. And uh, I'm, I'm hoping that they, they manage to sort of maintain that, even though I feel like inevitably 
there's going to be a sort of uh, a, a move towards a slightly more sort of substantive or, or um, you know, stories with greater repercussions. I mean, seeing the light, the dark saber, you know, okay, this is where we're we're going with that, and this is, you know, he's he's going to have to get that dark saber back, and 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 in doing so, he's going to become something for his people that you know he probably has no interest in being right now. Um, so yeah, and also just the central, I, I'm very interested to see how the sort of metaphor of the Mandalorians continues to sort of evolve uh, and uh, and play out um, and, and and where we see them, where we see their culture next. So, um, yeah, well, but I'll... Both for, go ahead. No, I was just saying, well, thank you both for joining me. Um, uh, where can our folks find your work? A- Emma, let us know specifically that Lone Wolf and Cub piece. Where can we find that? Uh, that is on, on Comicosity. Um, I'm under the uh, the Transmuscura heading. Um, I have my own section of the website. You can find us from just comicosity.com. Cool. Thank you. And you're on Twitter as? E-M-M-A-H-O-U-X-B-O-I-S. Fabulous. And, uh, Brendan, where can folks find your work online? I am on Twitter all the time as a genius bastard. Um also, um, you can find, uh, I've got a blog, which I actually don't think I've written, I've touched in about it almost a year now, but I'll definitely be writing a sort of end of the decade sort of summation. Um, that's a uh, geniusbastard.blogspot.com. Uh, so you can find, and I've got, also got essays there. I wrote a piece about toxic fandom just like days after um, The Last Jedi was released that I think <laughs> has held up very, very well. Um, so you can find pieces, uh, essays like that there. Fabulous. And I, of course, am at Graphic Policy Radio Podcast. We are on basically every podcast platform. I hope you will rate us and review us there and share it. And I'm on Twitter a little bit too much as Ilana underscore Brooklyn. That's E-L-A-N-A underscore Brooklyn. Um, and stay tuned. We we definitely have more comics coverage coming up, I assure you, and uh, including some deep dives into some older work as well. So as we always like to say on the show, keep it geeky. <laughs>